one thing that we talked about before we started recording that I think you're getting at, and you're nodding violently on the video. (laughs) So, um, is that Pluto and Charon, to my knowledge, is the only place in our solar system where you could have a space elevator, Arthur C. Clarke-style space elevator, linking both planets together. Theoretically, you could climb from one to the other. Wow, that's so cool. You go hand over hand between Would this setup help us with our uh, professional sports sponsorship? I'm sure it could. You could put, yeah, I'm sure you could put billboards on the space elevator. <laughs> Welcome to What the If. Philip Shane here documentary filmmaker, along with Professor Matthew Stanley, author of Einstein's War. That's a book you have coming out that we're very excited about. That is correct. Einstein's War will be uh, available for purchase in physical form uh, in about a month, uh, available for pre-order on Amazon now, if you want to hear about how Einstein became the most famous person in the world. It's is it it's it's his personal war as well as a war at large. I'm guessing that is right. It is his war to uh, get people to accept relativity as scientific truth. And at the same time, an actual war is raging around him. Fantastic, fantastic. Very excited about that. I'm going to jump right in. We have a fantastic guest tonight that I am very excited to welcome right away. I uh, will talk more about it in a moment, but I will just say that we met in the halls of Congress, actually in a hearing room. Uh, Neither one of us was being deposed or interrogated by the (laughs) House of Congress, House of Congress, House of Representatives. But uh, we'll tell more about that story. Kirby Runyon, welcome to What the If. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be on your show. We we were chatting, uh, what was it, a couple weeks ago about your profession, and I remember you said you really are an astrogeologist, but people don't go by that. People <laughs> don't use that term. Yeah, we don't we don't say astrogeologist. Although there is a there is a place called the U.S. Geological Survey Astrogeology Center, ah. um, mm. and that's in Flagstaff, Arizona, and that was started by kind of the father, one of the father figures of planetary geology, um, Dr. Gene Shoemaker. Um, but I'm a planetary geologist, so turns so does, out... Does it bother you to have the geo prefix in there, since it's not actually the Earth you're studying? We, we have a liberal interpretation of geo. All right. Anything spherical and rocky? Uh, act, well, actually, not even that. <laughs> so <laughs> asteroids get, get lumped into to, to geo- geology in that regard. But it's, it's more accurate than astrogeology, which would be the, the rocky science of stars, which is a non sequitur. Yeah, that would be a little weird. Yeah. So we, we, we don't go that far. But it does sound cool. It does oh, sound totally. Cool. Yeah. All right. uh, anything with astro sounds cool in front of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, even just the dog's name, right? The dog astro. Astro. Yes. Uh, and you are currently working on the, or, or is that right, on the New Horizons mm-hmm. mission? 
Yeah, that's right. Yep. Um, I'm a science team member on the geology and geophysics imaging team for the New Horizons mission that, of course, flew by the planet Pluto in 2015. And on January 1st of this year, 2019, flew by the planetesimal Ultima Thule, a billion miles uh, beyond Pluto, and is the building blocks of planets ranging in size from smaller than Pluto to Jupiter sizes. So, yes, um, it's the for in my opinion, it's the forefront of robotic space exploration to be able to literally see worlds that have never been visited before. It's very Captain Kirk, very Star Trek-like exploration, <laughs> going where no one has gone before or where no robot has gone before and seeing strange new worlds up close for the first time. No new civilizations yet. But, yeah, give it uh, time. Yeah. But give it time, yeah. But you have a prime directive, I assume, that you would follow if you encountered a civilization. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> we have a prime directive. <laughs> you won't interfere with their things, at least until after the first commercial. Then, and you, then yeah, that you'll beam first down, one. right, fall Whatever. in love with them. <laughs> oh, oh. Someone, shirt, someone loses a shirt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now let's get one very controversial, controversial thing out of the way real fast, but we need to identify it. It is the planet or planetesimal or dwarf planet-sized elephant in the room, and that is Pluto... And your your team feels very strongly about this, of course. Mm -hmm. Pluto is a planet. Go. Thank you. Yes. So the tagline is, ignore the IAU, dwarf planets are planets too. <laughs> so Pluto is merely the largest known of these small group of planets. Uh, there are over 125 known dwarf planets in the solar system. And if you count dwarf planet as a full-fledged class of planet like we do, like there are four giant planets two of which are gas giants and two of which are ice giant planets. There are at least four terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars in the solar system. But there's over 120 dwarf planets. So dwarf planets, yes, they're a full category of planet, but they're also the most common type of planet in just our own solar system, just like how red dwarf stars are the most common type of star in the Milky Way galaxy. And presumably how dwarf galaxies are the most common type of galaxies in the universe. So, so how do you uh, feel about the slippery slope argument that if we let Pluto in, then we have to let Sedna in and all these other weirdos? Oh, that's I'm totally fine with that. Uh, you know, we, we got into a bad mindset when we thought that teaching kids to memorize the names of eight or nine Roman gods was teaching them anything about the solar system. <laughs> so if we've got 130, 150 planets in the solar system, well, that's fine. How many? We've got 88 things on the periodic table. We've got 88 constellations. We've got, you know... We got to get out of this mindset of there having to be an easily memorizable number of a thing for it to be a meaningful category. <laughs> and you're not worried about angering the Roman gods at all? Uh, no, I think I think they're pretty chill. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 for your team and those who study Pluto up close and personal, this is an up close and personal thing. It's not just a sort of like joke in a way it, it, it's more than just sentimental in fact it, i would say it, there may be a little bit of sentimentality but really from a scientific point of view this is a scientific argument or a nomenclature argument you're saying it is a planet it is a planet and that's a tax that's an argument in taxonomy which is part of the science of categorizing things mm -hmm. and that might might seem like a potato potato argument but really what we call something affects the way we conceptualize it. Um, but really where it has the most importance is in talking to the general public about science. And in, like, you know, 
the IAU voted to no longer consider Pluto a planet with, in my mind, the grammatically nonsensical term phrase. And they literally say this dwarf planets are not planets. Of course, <laughs> planets are planets. They're a category of planets. And they voted on that. And in science, we don't vote. The science is not a democracy. It's, empir it's empirical evidence. And we don't get to impose our will on the universe. There shall only be eight planets. That's definite. That's we call that religion. And that is not science. And so we need to take the universe as the universe presents itself to us. And in that sense, understanding that when bodies have enough gravity to become spherical, that's telling us something really profound about the processes that um, melt and cool and crystallize ices and rocks and metals inside those worlds. And it's telling us something uh, about these planets as geologically active bodies. Now, you can have that on lumpy asteroids, but it, it really turns on when you, when you, when you get round. Get round. All right. Get round. All right, we're going to get round to it now. What the if? We could visit Pluto. And you, yes. you do kind of visit Pluto. So first of all, tell us how long to take us there. Let's get there robotically first, and then let's, from there, as a baseline, figure out what it would take to get people to Pluto. Okay. New Horizons, this uh, weighed, I think, 473.3 kilograms dripping wet on the launch pad. And by dripping wet, I mean it was fueled with hydrazine. And <laughs> we stuffed it inside of the pointy end of an Atlas V rocket, but that wasn't good enough. We put five solid rocket boosters around the outside of that Atlas V rocket, and that wasn't good enough either because we have a glutton for speed. So... Uh, on inside the pointy nose cone of the Atlas V rocket, we stuck a Star 48 solid rocket booster attached to the base of the New Horizons spacecraft. So if you're keeping score at home, at this point, this is like a four-stage rocket to get to Pluto. And so this type of rocket, which is normally used for launching national security payloads into Earth orbit, thought it was basically launching empty. It was the most powerful variant of, the, of a rocket we had, and we launched essentially empty with only a half-ton spacecraft. And so this thing just shot off the pad faster than any other rocket that's a real rocket. And so we flew past the moon's orbit in short order in just a few hours, and we made a beeline for Jupiter because we used Jupiter's gravity and its angular momentum to slingshot us even faster than we all were already going okay, I'm to gonna take one three step. years off the trip to Pluto. I'm just gonna take so it only took nine and a half years to get to Pluto with all of that. <laughs> I'm going to take one step back. You went by the moon in a matter of hours. Well, not the moon, but the moon's orbit, yeah. Okay, the moon's orbit. It took... Oh, so that counts. Yeah. Okay. The Apollo astronauts took three days to get there. Yeah. On the Saturn V. Right. Uh, do you know what? Now, do you know offhand what kind of G-forces you had on that? Uh, oh, that's a great question. I don't know. But there's a cool YouTube video you can go look. Uh, someone has made a video comparison of the New Horizons launching uh, on the most powerful variant of the Atlas V rocket, the Atlas V 551, and then an Atlas V rocket launching like a really heavy spy satellite for the National Reconnaissance Office. And it's no comparison. The one launching the satellite, mm. you can tell which one's which. Uh, mm. One's slowly lumbering off the pad, and the other one's like a bottle rocket going off. That's amazing. Wow. And so the reason they did that was to reduce the travel time you said it was nine years nine and, nine and a half years to pluto nine and a half years I, so and so uh, i don't know if we know how, how much faster it was than maybe the next one down or what would like if we send a, something to 
Jupiter. We sent, uh, for instance, Cassini to Saturn and uh-huh. Juno to Jupiter. Do we have any idea what? how long would those have taken at their speeds to get to Pluto? Far longer. A good comparison would be Voyager 2, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. when it flew... So Voyager 2 flew by Neptune in 1989, which at that time was about the same distance as Pluto. Both of them were about 30 times the Earth-Sun distance, or 30 astronomical units. And so Voyager 2 took 12 years to get to the same distance from the sun as Pluto to get to Neptune, uh, from launching in 1977 to 89. So it took, but that was after getting gravity assist from Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus. Right. So it got, it, it, it got three gravity assists. New Horizons only got one, and New Horizons still got there two and a half years sooner than Voyager 2 got to Neptune. Right. So um also like cassini did this inner solar system tour uh i think it flew by venus but it flew by venus and earth and then uh to get gravity assists by venus and earth and then again by jupiter to get onto saturn and it, the whole cruise took seven years uh just to get to saturn which right. is 10 astronomical units away right so you really went from practically the straight up cannonball approach just cannonball! Boom, get me there yeah, we went <laughs> as fast as we possibly could to get to pluto right with a light spacecraft and a heavy rocket so if if people were on that let's say we let's say we went we let's say we got okay. to go and so it's yeah. taken us nine and a half years which is amazing you're you're basically almost a decade older by the time you get there yeah and there's no getting around that but maybe hibernation but we we don't know we don't have to know how to do that yet is Not that yet. right matt no hibernation. Yeah, that's right we're working on it working on it yeah if you seem to I've heard they've done those experiments with dogs. Can you speak to that? Like oh. doing uh, experiments on dogs? Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean you want a mammal that's as close to humans as possible. Um so mice are your good model organisms. Um and then you want to scale up to something a little bit bigger. So I don't know where hibernation experiments are at the moment. I'd be surprised if we're past mice actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't go well in 2001. Just spoiler <laughs> yeah. alert. Spoiler alert. So, okay. So nine and a half years later, which is amazing. So, and we're with other people and we didn't have hibernation. So let's assume we're still all getting, let's see, it's the three of us. We're still getting along. Okay. Okay. Good. There's a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> exactly. At what point can we, you may not know the answer to this, but I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, there, there, there's a telescope where we can imagine having a camera. We could zoom way in on Pluto as we get closer and closer. But with the naked eye, um, at what point would we start to see it? Like in my mind, Pluto is so tiny mm-hmm. that uh, I wouldn't see it until I was very close. But let's oh, just say, compared to question, the moon, yeah. how much bigger is Pluto than the moon? It's smaller than the moon. <laughs> is, is that right? Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah, smaller than the moon wow. by a fair bit. Yeah. So at New Horizons' closest approach to Pluto, which is 10,000 kilometers, if you ha- if an astronaut had been on the New Horizons spacecraft, Pluto would have been about the size of your fist at arm's length or so. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. And about a week prior to closest approach using the LORI camera, which is like a, it's a it's a telescope attached to a camera basically on the spacecraft. We imaged the uh yeah, so about a week before closest approach, we were starting to see the light and dark variations on Pluto's surface. But that was with a decently powerful telescope. So if you imagine a human spacecraft had something comparable with a telescope, you'd be able to start seeing cool stuff about a week before closest approach, assuming you were going the same speed as New Horizons, which is 14 kilometers per second, Mm -hmm. eight and a half miles a second. A week is enough time to plan for a good party. Yeah, <laughs> a week a week to plan the party. Yeah, you've been cruising for nine and a half years, so yeah, <laughs> so weeks no big deal. So, now, actually, yeah. interestingly, so uh, New Horizons was 
what it did was incredibly difficult, you know. Uh, but, the engineers but, amazed me how they pulled this off. Yeah. Now, interesting, though, it wasn't landing. Let's assume we are going to land. Oof. So we have to pick a landing site as well. But I assume yeah. we could take longer. So uh. now here's the interesting thing. You, New Horizons we really just got one pass at Pluto and kept going. Yep. And that's a big part of, um, th- that was sort of, you were saying, we're going to sacrifice the amount of time we can spend there for the speed to get there in only nine and a half years. Right. But yeah. the, let's say that some in the audience may not understand wh- what is that about? Why, why couldn't you stop and go into orbit just like on Star Trek? Yeah. So we're going so fast that Pluto's gravity can't pull us into orbit around the planet. We would have to take a lot of fuel with us to slow down to be captured by Pluto's gravity to go into orbit so we could stay there and image the entire surface, for example. And the problem with taking that much mass with us is that we'd have to launch with that mass from Earth, and all that mass with us means that less energy is available for speed. And so we would have taken a lot longer, a lot longer to get to Pluto if we had taken enough fuel with us to slow down to go into orbit. All right. So one of the tricks we do with, say, uh, Mars landers is aero braking. So yep. we don't have to take a lot of fuel with us. We just kind of, you know, set up parachutes or ram scoops or whatnot. Um, could we do that with uh, this trip? Not terribly well. You couldn't really do aero braking. And that's because Pluto's atmosphere, atmospheric pressure is about one pascal compared to, I think it's 100,000 for Earth. And so that's that's the equivalent pressure of Earth's atmosphere at an altitude of 80 kilometers, which by some definitions is space. Oh, yeah. So... Oh, right. So you, and that's at the, and that's at the bottom of Pluto's atmosphere. At the top, it's a few millipascals. And so if you're going really fast as you're descending to Pluto's surface, you might feel bits of it, uh, bits of Pluto's atmosphere, but generally you have to assume it's not there. So that means you've got to use something else like rockets or whoopee cushions to break your descent onto Pluto's surface or aero or, or airbags. If you want to go Mars rover style. I was going to say the Mars rovers, they've used whoopee cushions, but technically, yes, technically, Technically. um, sometimes called airbags, but yes, whoopee cushions. (laughs) Now we, we didn't know that Pluto had an atmosphere until new horizons went by it. Is that right? Not quite. We 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 knew Pluto had an atmosphere because uh-huh. we saw we we actually purposefully watched stars move behind Pluto from Earth's perspective, and we could see the star dim right before it got behind Pluto. And so we knew there was an atmosphere. And in fact, that was one of the motivations for doing this mission now because Pluto's moving away from the sun, and the atmosphere could have frozen out onto the surface. And we wanted to study the atmosphere. What we didn't know, and I think what you're actually thinking of, is actually once the spacecraft flew into. Uh, Pluto's shadow, basically experiencing a Plutonian solar eclipse, we saw this beautiful cobalt blue haze around Pluto. That was that is Pluto's atmosphere. We did not expect to actually be able to visually see it. And if an astronaut had been on board the spacecraft, they absolutely would have been uh, shown that treat. So, um, so, and we also saw very well-defined, discrete layers within Pluto's atmosphere. So huh. that was not expected. We, we were only expected to be able to detect Pluto's atmosphere, really, maybe with the ultraviolet experiment, the ALICE spectrometer, but also with uh, the, the radio occultation experiment, where we used the, the uh, big communication dish on New Horizons to receive a signal from Earth as we went behind Pluto to use it as an atmospheric sounder to look at the atmospheric pressure and, and uh, uh Pressure and density and temperature. That's a good trick. Good trick, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So now, let's assume we get... Oh, sorry, God. I was going to say, where would you land on Pluto? 
Oh my goodness. So we don't know what over half the planet looks like because <laughs> A, uh, it was in permanent or not permanent, but persistent winter darkness in the southern hemisphere of Pluto. And Pluto's tipped over on its side. So the Arctic Circle is like close to the equator. It's crazy like that. that so the, the southern hemisphere was in, in seasonal winter darkness. So no idea what that looks like. <laughs> and then the far side of Pluto, the one that we did not fly past, we had only imaged it three days earlier. And it's, you know, much coarser pixel scale. It's very blurry. We don't have a good sense of it. So we've only imaged part of one hemisphere with any decent quality. Um, but so I'm a geologist. So I want to figure out the most about a place without having to walk very far. <laughs> and so you want to land in a place where lots of different geologic terrain types all meet up in right around the same area. And so there's this, you know, Pluto's heart, Sputnik Planitia. It's this giant nitrogen ice-filled uh, basin. Um, the nitrogen ice is actually thick enough to convect, like, if you could get Silly Putty or one of those weird artistic erasers to that, that are, like, stretching oh, yeah. to get one of those to flow. That's kind of what we think although a little bit more firm, but we think that's kind of what uh, nitrogen, the nitrogen ice glacier in Sputnik Planitia would be like. What? So we'd want to get close to the shoreline, I guess if you could call it that, of that glacier by the heart. You'd also want to be kind of by the plains to see what's going on geologically with the plains, preferably with a large crater nearby. And also you'd want to be close to the mountain range to figure out the Aladrisi mountain range is, is right there. So I'm thinking like northwest Sputnik Planitia. You could get a lot of different geologic terrain types in that same area without having to go very far. And then you could, you could just kind of drive around in a little loop if you've got a rover. And Pluto's gravity is so weak, you could, you could, you know, even I could be compelled to walk there happily. <laughs> and it would be, yeah, and you could figure out a lot about Pluto's geologic history and the geologic processes going on in a fairly short uh, excursion. That's cool. So what is the gravity? How much is the gravity? I looked it up. It's I think it's a 0.6 meters per second squared compared to Earth's 9.8 meters per second squared. <clears throat> so oh that's about half the moon's gravity. Wow. Okay. So, you know, go back and watch the, go on YouTube and you can, or Apollo17.org, and you can watch astronauts walking on the moon. They do fairly well. And then just kind of, and then, and then play the video back at half speed. <laughs> okay. So it's not so light that you could jump off it. No, 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 no. You couldn't you jump would, off. Right. Right. So you'd be you'd be held on the surface. It, it, it might almost be like a nuisance level of gravity. Like it's uh -huh. enough that you have to contend with it. But if you're trying to do something useful, like like push a, a, a I don't know push a shovel into the ground or a, a core tube into the ground, you'd end up pushing yourself off the ground instead. Interesting. And that'd be annoying. Yeah. So uh, you can, all right, but well, a good place to set like long jump records, right? Absolutely. Yes, <laughs> long jump records. Anything athletic. I I am not athletic. But if I were, no, if I were on Pluto, I, I could look like I was. That's oh, well, that's a good reason to go then, right? So you can set like basketball hoops like 12 feet higher than they already are. I don't know what regulation height is because, mm -hmm. again, not sports. Right. Um, but you could set it 12 feet higher and you could still and it'd be the same as if it were on Earth at the current height. Well, um, that'd be great. Maybe we can get like maybe. Major League Baseball to fund the mission or something. You might also be able to. Ooh, there's so much money in sports. I've often wished they could use their props exactly. for something more interesting, frankly. Yeah. So now, Matt, Matt, uh, from a historical point of view, what is something that when we land and we mm -hmm. want to have just a, not a big deal, but we want to make a symbolic gesture of some kind, what might we do? Make a rude gesture to the IAU. Sorry, Matt. Well, it's just, that's precisely what I was thinking, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, I think it depends whether the IAU has approved this mission or not. Uh, <laughs> it's only a dwarf mission. It's not a real mission. <laughs> dwarf mission. I should say, actually, to to plug my book here for the moment, the story of the IAU's founding is actually intimately tied up with World War One, um, and it's actually uh, kind of awful. So, um, oh. if you if you want the dirt on why the IAU was rotten from the start, you can uh, pick up my book. Wow! Wow! Are you going to be speaking there during your book tour? I will not be on Pluto. No, not now. No, <laughs> or at the IAU. <laughs> So, <laughs> excuse me. So, um, uh, for instance, it's interesting to note that I think it wasn't, it, they didn't talk about it until later, that Buzz Aldrin actually, who I don't think was that religious a person, but he decided to uh, have like a mini communion or something, didn't he, on the moon? He had a little... Yeah, yeah he right. did. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. interesting, very interesting. I think, I think uh, I want to say it was either a Presbyterian or a Lutheran. He, he went and talked to his, uh, I think, a Presbyterian pastor and took uh, a Eucharist okay. kit and celebrated Holy Eucharist on the moon. Mm-hmm. Read yeah. a passage from the Gospels. Yeah, I think I would probably do something Disney related. Let's <laughs> speak about Pluto. Um, so we land, and uh, we. Uh, it so- sounds like the air is so thin that basically our spacesuits are virtually identical to what you would wear on the moon. Mm, well, you, or, well, the moon's pretty. I don't know. I mean, the moon's like positive two hundred fifty degrees, well Fahrenheit, oh, in the sun. Uh huh. Yeah. Pluto is like mm, 40 degrees above absolute zero, like 40 Kelvin. Mm. Whoa. So, so do we even have the tech to keep people alive at that temperature? Yeah, so we got to figure that one out. Um, you know, I might stick a chunk of plutonium in people's spacesuits to keep them warm. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I-, I can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not. No, no, <laughs> a, I think it's an excellent idea. That's right. And then we can use that to provide power, too. So. Yes. You know, in, so I assume you guys have read The Martian or at least seen the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, they were they were unnecessarily freaking out about the plutonium in the RTG, the radioisotope thermoelectric generator. Because, uh-huh. you know, yeah, yes, plutonium is radioactive and you certainly don't want to ingest it. But it, 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 it decays via alpha decay, which is helium nuclei. And they, it, as soon as they pick up an electron, it's, they're harmless. And so just a little bit of air or even like paper or cloth shielding is enough to protect you from the radiation from plutonium. Oh, okay. Yeah, just don't so, breathe it in and you're fine. Don't yeah. breathe it in, don't eat it, and you're totally fine around plutonium, except that it's hot, which is what you want on Pluto. Yeah. Wow. I should say I have, along these lines, I have held a chunk of uranium-235, which is similar, um, naked yeah. in my hand. And I probably should not put on a recording the circumstances under which this happened. But, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and no mutations yet? No supernatural? No, supernat- no, although I could attribute my identical twin daughters to that. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And their superpowers, which were not And their superpowers. To- That's right. So I want to back up a little bit, actually. So yeah. you actually probably don't... I mean, plutonium would be fine to keep you warm for the next... 88 years, because that's a half-life of plutonium-238. But really, there's not a lot of anything to allow you to generate electrical power that far from the sun. Oh, right. And so if you're leaving from Earth, you probably actually want to take like an enriched uranium nuclear reactor with you. So mm. plutonium does not generate electricity with any kind of nuclear reaction. It's just hot, mm. and it keeps the thermocouple hot, and the other end of the thermocouple is cold, and that generates an electric current, that temperature difference. That's called the thermoelectric effect. But if you used in low enriched uranium with a control rod to absorb excess neutrons, you would have, I mean, the half-life of that is something something like four and a half billion years, which is the age of the solar system. <laughs> and it's a basically a limitless power supply for however long your human colony is on Pluto. Wow. Yeah, that sounds okay. pretty good. That's good. Um, 
So we we brought that's excellent. So we brought one of those. Yep. And um, we put it down, and I guess we build like a igloo kind of thing, uh, <laughs> or you know, like a, a carbon monoxide snow. Yes, we made a build an igloo out of that. Okay, yep. Good. Oh, interesting. Okay, right. So this so the snow on Pluto is not water ice. It's, it's also yellow, but not for the reasons it is on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? It's yellow. Yeah, ish. Yeah, oh, it's yellowish. Interesting. Wow. So there's yellow carbon, carbon monoxide snow. Don't eat it. But yeah, you could build an igloo. Sure, build an igloo out of it, or or out of nitrogen ice. Although that's kind of soft, so it'll kind of like sag after a while. Wow, this okay. is awesome. Now you mentioned that the the um, so those of us who have. And, and I think most people have now. We've seen a picture of Pluto from New Horizons, and we saw that sort of heart-shaped, uh, gigantic area. And you mentioned that, that did you say if you walk on that, it would be a little bit spongy? No, no. Uh, uh, it's, I mean, no, it'd be firm enough to walk on. Uh, right. It's just that it's, it's at a couple kilometers thick. It's, it's soft enough at those length scales to be able to flow. But it would be as if you had something like those stretchy erasers or a lava lamp or something and, and was watching a soft, solid deform and flow. Right, um, right, right. But, but just for, from a human scale perspective, no, it would be, it'd be hard ground. Right. So you're a geologist on Pluto. Mm-hmm. What do you do? <laughs> what, is your, what is your task? What would, here's the first thing. What would be the most exciting thing you'd want to do first? Just to see what everything looks like up close would be the most exciting thing to ah, do first, I think. Uh-huh. And so when a geologist is new to an area, they're, they're, they're looking around everywhere. They, they're trying to just get a lay of the land. Uh, there's a lot of just running around, running around, you know, like an outcrop, running around rocks to see what the other side looks like. And then you start to build up a mental picture of the area. And this is where field mapping comes in, where earth field geology techniques would kick in on Pluto the same way as they do on Earth. And you would start mapping uh, probably with something like an iPad in your hand and, and recording where you are and what the rocks are. And on Pluto, they're icy rocks. They're, you know, ice is a rock. And you'd be recording the, the, the rock types, the ice types, the, the geologic structures, if there's any, so if there's faults, if there's craters, if there are sublimation pits, if there are sand dunes or snow drifts, which we do see on the surface of Pluto, or, or any other landform that you, you could possibly think of. You, you'd be drawing it on your map and over time, as you build up this geologic map from doing mapping in the field, you start to get a sense of the different geologic processes that occurred at different times relative to each other. And you can start to forensically reconstruct the history of the, the, the reconstruct the natural history of the area and understand the geologic story of that part of the planet. And if you do that in enough places, you really start to understand the big picture of that planet and how the, the, the planet works as a kind of its own machine. Yeah. And so, to, so to, what I would do first is to look around and then, and then as soon as I was able to start mapping uh-huh. and then the mapping would tell me what rocks are, are particularly weird and could give me insight into them and then sample those rocks, take samples back to the laboratory put it like a, a well got it they can't melt because they're, they're ice so we got to keep them cold not hard uh but look at them under microscopes uh do uh, uh geochemistry on them look at the isotopes in there try because that can tell us about the uh heating history and the and the the composition and the formation story of these elements so we 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 scrutinize them in the laboratory under microscopes under different 
I'm not a, you can probably tell by my humming and hawing, I'm not a geochemist. So I, <laughs> right, right. Well, you would hand that off to the geochemist. I would hand that off. We would potentially, <laughs> if we're going to Pluto, we would bring a geochemist with us. Right. So, right. Um, yeah. So we would, we would want to investigate the samples we brought back um, to, into the lab and then plan the next traverse and the, the next expedition. And then we'd also want to figure out how to live off the land as much as possible. You could melt yeah. the, I mean, there's a lot of water ice. You can, you can mine that, quarry that, and then melt it. And it, perfectly fine to drink and split into oxygen and hydrogen and breathe the oxygen and so on. And then there's plenty of nitrogen snow. So you can supplement your atmosphere with just vaporize that, breathe that as, as, as a good filler gas. And uh, let's see, you're smart. So we brought a enriched uranium nuclear reactor with us from earth, but you might also want to construct some mirrors uh, to re- reflect mm. and concentrate sunlight, either for the purposes of heating or just to stave off like seasonal depression. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> I'd imagine that would be a pretty serious problem out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, so where I am in Maryland right now, the sun is just about setting as we record this. And that's about high noon on Pluto in the summer. Oh, wow. So that, oh, that brightness right. level. So fascinating. fascinating. So, so yeah. and, and, and um, so it's interesting that you, we could go there and there's, you could drink things and you could make air, let's say, but there's nothing to eat. I assume. Right. Yeah, nothing to eat. Um, so, how are your botany skills? <laughs> well, I saw the Martian. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're going to have to go Mark Watney there and grow some potatoes, I think. That's right. That's right. That's right. And uh, in the movie, and in the book, he also crushed up Vicodin and mixed it with the potatoes because why? Oh, because he had some depression issues. Yeah, he had some right? depression issues because there wasn't enough sunlight. He was mm, a all makes sense now. steely-eyed missile man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the Vicodin gave him the steely-eyed part. So... <laughs> In the sky now, Pluto has a moon. Yes. Tell us about yes. that. And can you see it? Would you see it if you were on Pluto? Uh, if you were on the hemisphere of Pluto that New Horizons flew past, you would not see Pluto's moon in the sky, Pluto's moon, oh. Charon, um, also pronounced Charon. Um, so because Pluto and Charon are tidally locked, they both only present one face to the other. I'm going to liberally call them both planets. Um, they only present one face to the other. And, uh, and so... On, on the hemisphere we didn't fly past, you would permanently see Charon suspended in the same spot of the sky, but it would go through different phases, just like our moon does. There are also four other smaller moons orbiting around both Pluto and Charon, uh, Styx, Nix, Kerberos, and Hydra. And uh, fun fact, I named my cat after Nix. Awesome. <laughs> a good cat name. Yeah. So, so Nixie's outside right now. Um, and... Uh, well, what's one thing that we talked about before we started recording that I think you're getting at, and you're nodding violently on the video, <laughs> yes. so um, is that Pluto and Charon, to my knowledge, is the only place in our solar system where you could have a space elevator, Arthur C. Clarke-style space elevator, linking both planets together, because the orbit of Pluto and Charon around their common point, the barycenter, is pretty much circular, Wow. And you'd only need a little bit of expansion joints to account for just the very slight non-circularity and for thermal expansion effects. But you could literally like link both planets together and you could you could climb theoretically, you could climb or take an elevator from one to the other. Or from the outside it would look like a like a dumbbell, almost like a cartoonish oh, a, a lopsided dumbbell. It's, yeah. 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 It would. Yeah. So how much smaller is Charon than Pluto? It's uh Charon is half the diameter of Pluto. Huh? And in no other case in the solar system is the moon so close to being the same size as the planet it orbits. Pluto and Charon are uniquely oh. close in size. 
Um, right. Like, like our moon is only about the width of Africa, for instance, which is big, of course, but yeah. it's, 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 you know, so substantially, substantially smaller. smaller than the whole planet. Yeah. 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 Um, but Pluto and Karen are so close to being the same size that, and they, they're entirely locked orbits. You could put a space elevator between them. So I've like, I've imagined like the competitions are like literally just climbing and you don't have to get too high. And then like <laughs> you're, 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 the gravity of the situation literally is such that you're basically weightless pretty soon. And then you just go for, and I don't have the number off the top of my head, but whatever is the distance between Pluto and Charon, and mm-hmm. you're just falling for a while, and then you get to a point where Charon's gravity takes over, and then all of a sudden you're upside down, but that's okay. And then eventually you you, you land on Charon's surface, and you've got a whole other planet to explore, and more geology to do. <laughs> wow, that's so cool. You go hand would, over hand would, between Would this them. setup help us with our uh, professional sports sponsorship? I'm sure it could. You could put, yeah, I'm sure you could put billboards on the space elevator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Forget the Kessel run. You did the, you know, the Charon, <laughs> Pluto Charon run. Literally, you ran it. <laughs> Literally ran it. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. less than 12 parsecs, I think. Less, way less than 12 way parsecs. Way less than 12 parsecs. <laughs> yeah. um, so, right. So, interesting. So, Charon, the moon of Pluto and Pluto itself r- really don't move in relation to each other. Like, they are locked in a very, very stable dance. Yeah. If they were making eye contact the whole time, it'd be awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's interesting, you mentioned the phases. So how long does is how long does it take Pluto to go around the sun? Oh, 248 years to go around the sun, both Pluto and Charon together, 248 uh-huh. years to go around the sun. And then only six or six and a half days to orbit each other. So a day oh. on Pluto and Charon is about six and a half Earth days long. Um, uh-huh. So over the course of six or six and a half days, it, regardless of whether you're on Pluto or Charon, you'd see the other planet going through phases just like they do uh, on Earth. Although it depends on the season, because right now, uh, Pluto and Charon are kind of orbiting perpendicular to their line of sight to the sun. And so the phases would be much more subtle. Pluto's a planet, hmm. Pluto and Charon are, are planetary system kind of on their side. Hmm. And so the North and South Pole spend a fair bit of time pointing pretty close to the sun direction. Wow. So this is... Uh, we're getting uh, limited on time, and I want to make sure I ask you, what is something that uh, you guys have learned since uh, New Horizons sent back its images? We learned what the whole planet looks like in the first place. Hmm. So my in the scientific method, you propose hypotheses, you set out observations and experiments to test those hypotheses, you, you confirm or refute those, and you refine the hypotheses until they become a theory, and a theory is something that's been tested and has stood the test of time for a long time. And we, th- we were in the de- pre-hypothesis phase of science. We didn't even really know hypotheses to ask we didn't we weren't smart enough to even ask a question other than what does it look like wow and to me that was the most exciting and that's the most exciting and gripping part of science and that's why i'm professionally in this field is because that really turns my crank and i'm going to contrast this with the exploration of mars uh-huh. No one's asking, what does Mars look like? We, we've sent, I think, now seven rovers or landers to the surface of Mars. We've had so many orbiters. There's lots of great science to be done on Mars, looking for life, etc. But it's not that same kind of edge-of-your-seat, first-order exploration anymore. And so, to me, the frontier of space exploration is, is Saturn and beyond, and especially in the Kuiper Belt, where Pluto orbits. Uh, because we're still asking these first-order questions of, what does it even look like? Like, we don't even know what hypotheses to test. 
Now, it turns out with the Ultima Thule flyby, this little 21-mile peanut-shaped or snowman, like pancake-flattened snowman thing that we flew past on January 1st, 2019, that's a planetesimal. That's what forms the bigger planets. And so we actually did have hypotheses to test, and those were the planetary formation scenarios. Like, um, one of these hypotheses is the is the pebble accretion model of planetesimal formation. How do you even make a planetesimal from the early solar nebula where you've got gas and you've got random bits of ice and rock and debris flying around, which itself is left over from a supernova explosion. Um, so based on the geologic characterization we've been able to do of Ultima Thule, we think that, yeah, the pebble accretion model, model is probably the correct way that you make planetesimals. And then from there, planetesimals collide and form planets like Pluto and Charon. So with Ultima Thule, we had hypotheses to test. With Pluto, yes, we had some hypotheses to test, but so much of it was just like, let's explore. Let's let this is the first step of science for exploring this new world. What does it look like? Amazing, and still more than half is yet unseen. Most of it is still unseen. Amazing, yeah. amazing. So Matt, if you could just give us as we wrap up historically, where does that where where did that New Horizons mission, let alone Ultima Thule as well, fit in the context of? Oh, well, I mean, in one sense, it's an extension of what we've been doing for, you know, 40 years or so with our robotic um, spacecraft missions. Uh, but I think there's um, uh, something to be said about it, at, particularly as uh, as stepping over the boundary of those imperial gods, right? We, we tend to obsess over the inner solar system as the solar system, neglecting the fact that the vast majority of it is out there and quite different than what we're used to. Um, so as our first kind of sticking our toes into the cold water uh, of the outer expanses of the solar system, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Can you see Earth from Pluto with the naked eye? No. Ooh, that's a great question. I would guess, well, it's going to be very close to the sun. Uh, yeah. So you would only see it right before sunrise or right after sunset on Pluto. Mm -hmm. And for not very long, you need a clear view of the horizon right. away from city lights. Right. And it's probably bright enough you could see it. Right. Jupiter would be a thing. Yeah. yeah. But Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune and Uranus, those all would you'd, be very bright. Be able to, I would imagine. I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you'd actually be close to the giant planets, which is kind of amazing. Um, yeah. Close in relative terms anyway, right? Yeah. Still I mean, you still see points of light in the sky. <laughs> yeah. um, and you'd probably be able to see them in daylight. I mean, I mean, the sun would still be blindingly bright to look at from the surface of Pluto. Um, oh. Uh -huh. It would be, like I think, like 10,000 times brighter than a full moon on Earth. It would still be quite bright. Okay. Um, but, so, but I think you'd still be able to see planets in the daytime sky of Pluto. Interesting. Barely. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, here's my very last question. How long does it take radio signal? Like, if we want to communicate back with Earth. Yeah. How long does it take our message to get to Earth? Oh, a little over four hours. Four hours. Yeah. So Pluto's about four light hours away. <laughs> wow. Uh, but it's getting further away as we speak. So Pluto's in a very elliptical orbit. So it's, it's, it's stretching out right now. Okay. Well, the round trip when we could yeah. yeah eight and a half hours yeah yeah and new horizons is still out there the satellite is still out there and it's just going further and have they chose have they found any other objects that it could visit so we so in terms of doing a close flyby we are writing a proposal to nasa to 
say, please fund us, please give us money, and we will do this. We will use the onboard telescope because we're actually beyond the ability of the Hubble Space Telescope to find our next target. We would use the onboard LORI camera telescope to look for another thing to do, like another Ultima Thule-like flyby. We have enough fuel on board for huh? one more of those. Whoa. If we can't find it, we could. there's still more science to do as the spacecraft continues out of the solar system right. irreversibly. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, thank nice. you so much. I mean, I, I, we're absolutely going to have you back. I could do this Please. Uh, forever. So... <laughs> <laughs> So awesome. So awesome. You have taken us. I, re- I feel like I've been there a little bit. I'm a little, I'm glad I brought my nuclear powered heater. Yeah, uh, you need that. That we got at Home Depot. That was pretty awesome. Special ordered, but we got it. Mm-hmm. Um, in gratitude for being our tour guide to Pluto and Charon and worlds beyond, <laughs> you are going to receive a finger puppet. <laughs> of a great yeah. scientist. Yay, thank you. Yes. I will cherish it and put it on my desk at work. That's wonderful. <laughs> a finger puppet of a great scientist or science fiction character from our friends at the uh, Unemployed Philosophers Guild. They <laughs> Brilliant. Yes. Their website is philosophersguild.com. They are employed, but just not as philosophers. Yeah. They make these <laughs> they call they say they make smart funny gifts for smart funny people. Um <laughs> So you're going to get one of those. Also, oh, i got to talk to him and see which which one we can get you. We have also teamed up uh, just recently with uh, an artist named Thomas Romer, who has done beautiful work of, of all kinds of space-related art, but in particular, a series of posters, which you may have seen. Um, they're sort of art deco or mid-century modern style and they sell he has he has one series of, of all different kinds of posters he does one series is called the historic spacecraft series and there i'm quite sure there is a new horizons one there no oh, nice so i'll talk sure. to that and get you that one specific yeah so you're gonna get that as well and his store is called the chop shop store nice so for our audience until i can have you on as a guest so i can also give you these delightful gifts uh, you can go, if you go to philosophersguild.com, you can get not just finger puppets, you can get whatever you want. If you use the coupon code WTIF, you get 10% off anything at the philosophersguild.com. And if you go to Thomas Romer's Chop Shop store, uh, you get 15% off with the same coupon code WTIF. So check both of those out. Um, Kirby, thank you so much. My Matt, pleasure. I want to plug you have a book coming out. No discount, full price. But order it now. That's right. And you get bragging rights for having the first person in your neighborhood to have it. That's right. And the book is called Einstein's War. And it's on uh, Amazon. Is it on elsewhere as well? Do we know? That's a good question. I'm not sure. There are places besides Amazon to buy things? <laughs> they're, it's hard yeah. to conceive of such a they're thing. Dwarf, they're dwarf stores. <laughs> <laughs> dwarf sites. <laughs> Right in. I want to know what what'd you think about today's show. How do you feel about P- Pluto standing up? Kirby standing up for Pluto and saying, "Yeah, we're planets. Deal with it." <laughs> um, and uh, so now we're going to say good night. And and uh, Kirby, as I, I think I mentioned, we we did practice. Full disclosure to the audience, we practiced this. We did, we're going to do this now with our guests because we had several minor accidents, nothing permanent. But, you know, we do our routine here where we shout the name of the show. And, Matt, why do we do this? Why do we end with this ridiculous 
uh, activity. Surely that's self-explanatory, right? Because that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. So what it happens has is selected for by natural selection that we do this yeah, exactly <laughs> because we get because it's there, and so so Kirby, what happens is when we we have no idea what we're doing next week. We have no idea what idea, what where will we go, what will we explore. But when it presents itself to us, we look on it with shock and horror. <laughs> and we cannot help but scream, What, what the, the- uh- yeah. 